Disaster, a podcast about disasters and the music they make us listen to. I'm Peter, and I'm not here with my co-host, Lee. Hi. Because we're both in social isolation. That's right. Because we're recording this episode during the coronavirus pandemic of 2020. Mm, This is our (laughs) first official socially isolated podcast podcast indeed yeah. well we, we did that like announcement thing yeah we did a little sort of that was like a, a proof of concept and now we're doing like a full-length episode in the comforts of our own home exactly and this one is actually scheduled to come out in april and if everything's blown over by then people are going to be pretty confused they're like you guys <laughs> you guys know it's over right <laughs> right yeah <laughs> no yeah. we commit yeah we commit to that and it won't be but you know maybe yeah <laughs> <laughs> if you're new here thanks for joining us there seem to be more and more of you so that that's awesome to see we're streaming this live on uh, discord so now people are are actually around to witness us nail everything the yeah, very first time we say it. Exactly. No ums, no gaps, nothing that I'm going to spend hours editing after the fact. It's going to be great. No gigantic snorks of snot. <laughs> if you're wondering how to help us out, the best thing you can do is to tell a friend to listen because that's the number one way that we get more people listening and more people excited. So that's awesome. Next best thing you can do is subscribe if you aren't already. Leave a review. That's super helpful. If you want to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at This Disaster Pod, we got a website www.thisdisasterpod.com and a brand new patreon.com slash this disaster pod. Right before we dive into this disaster, I'm going to do a little bit more listener feedback because I've been I've been engaging a little bit on the social medias. Yeah. I've been asking some questions. I don't know if you saw that, but I've been asking some questions, especially during this uh, shut-in period. So the first thing that I was kind of shocked, I asked on Instagram how many people carry a pocket knife. So we did that Hartford fire and it turns out a pocket knife saved some lives. Yeah. I was assuming that it'd be like 80% yes, but 44% of people carry a pocket knife okay and that's it yeah that seems about right does it okay maybe i'm <laughs> maybe i'm too fond of sharp objects yeah. in my pocket <laughs> it says more about you than the general public well then we'll just breeze right past it. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that i asked is how everyone's dealing with the end times as we're all shut in mm. got some interesting responses to that very first one was by going back and listening to our different plague episodes so that's probably a good thing to do <laughs> yeah. we did uh a very first one was the plague of athens that was a lot of fun yeah. and we did, did a two-part on the black death So check that out if you're still shut in by the time this episode comes out and being ravaged by the current corona death, I Mm -hmm. guess. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Other things, people mentioned that Doom Eternal is coming out in four days at the time. At this point, it's coming out tomorrow. And I've already got it preloaded. It's sitting on my Steam right now. Oh, God. And I'm just like waiting to pounce. (laughs) I am jealous. And finally, somebody said that they were so stressed and trying to find the positives. So I suggested one positive is that there's no annoying coworkers right now because everyone's pretty much working from home if they can. True. So that's a bonus. Yeah. You got tons of stuff on Netflix and chilling is optional. And also you've got a brand new episode coming out in basically a week at this point of our show. Of our show. Yeah. There's some silver linings. There's always yeah. silver linings. One last thing. We got a brand new patron. Theon hey! Schultz has joined us. Yeah. And he actually made a suggestion for a couple of disasters, so he should keep an ear out for those. One of them was actually already on my list, a couple of devastating fires. So oh, those are coming really? up. Those are coming up soon. But thanks for joining us. Uh, honestly, any any bit of help on Patreon helps a ton. That is very appreciated. Yeah. It's amazing. Thank you. And actually, we just got a patron just now. Get out of yeah. town. No, that's yeah, that's awesome. I think people are taking your advice and telling their friends. I that's what I sincerely think. hope so. Yeah. That is awesome. Well, welcome. Thank well, you. Ho- hopefully she makes it onto Discord in time to catch some of this disaster. <laughs> okay. On to the disaster. All so right. when I picked this disaster, you know, like when you have a certain impression of something and you get like really, really excited about it and like you can't wait to dive in, and then you go and Jar Jar Binks is in it, <laughs> and you're like Oh, this is still good, but it's a bit thinner than I thought it would be. Yes, I do. I already indicated to you, as you know, if you listen to this podcast, you know that we love our sidebars. Oh, yeah. So this episode's basically an episode sandwiched between sidebars. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be a little bit of a journey through things that I found interesting, but I think they're they're all pretty, pretty super cool. You always bring it, Peter. Hey, Lee. Did you know that June 30th is International Asteroid Day? I didn't know that. It had been suggested since 1772 that a planet might exist between the orbit of Mars and Jupiter. Okay. Indeed, there was a large gap between Mars and Jupiter that was first identified by Johannes Kepler in the late 16th century. And that name might sound familiar mm-hmm. if you had listened to our Cosmic Terror episodes and We Are Alone that we did with Nuclear Norm, yep. episodes 11 and 17. So there's a German astronomer named Johann Ellert Bode, and he proposed something called the Titius Bode Law. <laughs> Tid- yeah, right. Uh, 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 uh. Anyway, the, so Titius... <laughs> Titi- I can't... No, no. no. 
No, 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 I can't do it. <laughs> so Titius was the last name of another German astronomer named Johann Daniel. The Titius Bode law suggested that each planet is found at approximately twice the distance from the sun as the previous planet. Okay. So if you've got, for example, well, but so, so if you've got Venus, so Venus would be twice as far away from the sun as Mercury, and then Earth would be twice as far away from the sun as Venus, etc. And actually it worked well to the point where it correctly predicted the orbit of, you know what, I'm just going to push through. Uranus, uh, <laughs> which was discovered nine years later in March 1781. Okay. So happy birthday, Uranus. Happy birthday to Uranus. That's the last time we say Uranus. Uh, okay. <laughs> Are they really like the distances get, they double for the planets? For a while. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to, I'm going to get into, uh, there's a reason that you haven't heard of the Tidious Bode Law until right now. Because it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I mean. That's how science works. Yeah, Something, right. Something's right until they prove it wrong. Based on this, it found Uranus, and it also just suggested, based on this, you know, f- the, the factors, sort of the doubling of the orbits, it also just suggested that a planet might exist in the space between Mars and Jupiter. Right. Unfortunately, the law was disproved when it failed to predict Neptune's orbit when it was discovered in 1846. Oh, okay. The discovery of Neptune did, however, help to scar me when I was 13 and I saw Event Horizon for the first time. Oh, is Neptune... I don't know if you remember, but... I don't remember that movie well enough. I remember it too well. <laughs> I saw it. Have I told you the story of Event Horizon and me? I'm pretty sure, but tell tell the listeners. Sure. Parents were going to a party. Maybe this this will this might make it in. This might not. <laughs> Parents were going to a party and I decided to rent a movie for myself back when you could rent movies. Actually, I rented it from Loblaws. Nah. <laughs> when you could rent movies from Loblaws. Nice. When you could rent movies, period, and when you could rent them from Loblaws. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I was like, I like science fiction. Uh, let's check out this movie. I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it in the comfort of my own home, <laughs> and it scared the ever-loving shit out of me because I put it on, like my parents left, I put it on at around dusk, so around maybe like 7 p.m., maybe it was around this time. Right. So it was getting dark. I hadn't really put any lights on, but I was like, it's sci-fi. I love sci-fi. I put it on. It was like two hours of terror for me (laughs) because I just, maybe I just wasn't ready for it at the time. I didn't really like horror movies yet. And then when it ended, it was like full nighttime (laughs) and I hadn't put on any lights or anything. (laughs) And I was basically like paralyzed with fear. Like full literal, you know, that, you know that expression being paralyzed with oh, fear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like couldn't move off the couch. I had to pull myself off the couch. I remember like shimmying along the wall to get to my bed. <laughs> the fastest I've ever run is from the door to my bedroom to my bed <laughs> that night when I watched Event Horizon. Okay. And I haven't watched it since. What? I've gotten into scary movies since then, as you know. Yeah. Like Hereditary is one of my favorite movies, period. Now. Right, right, right. But I haven't gone back to watch Event Horizon because I feel like it's got a special place in my psyche where if I see it, I feel like I'm just going to be a cowering mess all over again. That or it just won't. You'll be like, what was I so... Like it'll, it'll yeah. ruin that experience for you in a way. Maybe. I feel like if I saw Event Horizon for the first time now, it wouldn't be that scary. Yeah, exactly. But because it has so much baggage... It's just this pinnacle of terror for me. Yeah, exactly. Still. So you want to retain that feeling. Don't watch the movie. Yeah, that's true, actually. Because then when I saw Hereditary, I'm like, well, that didn't terrify me as much as Event Horizon did. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing will ever measure. That's how I'll deal with everything. Yeah. That's how I'm dealing with coronavirus. That's... This isn't as scary as Event Horizon. <laughs> in 1800, faith was still strong in the Titius Bode Law because it did find Uranus after all. Oh, I said I wouldn't say it anymore, but I said it. You can say Uranus if you want to be boring. <laughs> so anyway, the faith, faith was still wrong because it did find Uranus after all. <laughs> to kind of reinforce the law and to see how far they could take it, Franz Xavier von Sach founded a group of 24 astronomers and he called them the Celestial Police. <laughs> Which, cool. right? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the idea of the Space Force is dumb, but that's still a cool name. It is. It sounds like a cartoon from the 80s. Like, Am I going to join the Marines or the Space Force? Yeah. Space Force. Space Force. Always Space Force. Where's my laser gun? (laughs) (laughs) So among the astronomers on the Celestial Police was a man named Giuseppe Piazzi, and he was Italian, a priest, a mathematician, and an astronomer, Yeah, which always kind of impresses me when I hear that kind of list of credentials, because maybe it was just a different time. Maybe it was just less to know back then and you could be everything. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Now being a mathematician would take all of your time, not just, oh, I'm also a mathematician and I'm an astronomer. I also, I'm also a priest. Yeah, do it all. Now it's like, you kind of got to focus now. That just meant that he owned an abacus, some kind of telescope and a crucifix. Those are the qualifiers. (laughs) Oh, that guy must be a priest. Uh, but yeah, again, 1800s, it's... So we're far beyond the very first philosophers, but it's still... There's a lot of low-hanging fruit. Sure. There's still a lot of things to... That you can just sit around and be like, huh, <laughs> and figure them out, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. 
He was one of these people. So he would eventually, Piazzi would eventually oversee the completion of the Capo de Monte Observatory in 1817. Okay. 16 years before that, though, he was watching the space between Mars and Jupiter. Because remember, they predicted that there might be a planet there. He saw what he described as a stellar object moving against the background of stars. Okay. He initially thought it was a star, but he observed over the course of a few days that it was moving through the night sky. And stars typically don't do that. Right. At least not on a scale that they could observe in the 19th century with a telescope. Right. He told the world that it was a comet, but he internally he thought that it might be a new planet. <laughs> Following further observation, it was confirmed that it wasn't a star or a comet. It was a celestial body, and it was named Ceres. Oh. Or Ceres, I guess, is the way that... You know what? Nuclear norm's going to crucify me either way that I say it. He gave me such a hard time for saying Io, because I guess technically it's Eo. Eo. Anyway. Boy. Ser I'm going to say Ceres from now on. These words are weird. Right? Yeah. Words are always weird. Yeah. So Ceres was the first asteroid from our solar system's asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. It's also the largest. It's... 940 kilometers in diameter. Oh, shit. For reference, the moon is about 3,500 kilometers. So it's about a third the size of the moon. Okay. Big asteroid. Right. And if you watch The Expanse, it makes sense why they set up a base there because they've got a lot of material to work with. Ah. And it's actually the largest of our asteroids by a factor of two. So I've got a few other asteroids in our uh, solar system. One is Vesta at 525 kilometers, discovered in 1807. And it's named for Hestia, the Greek goddess of hearth, domesticity, family, home, and the state. Lovely. Which I always find Greek gods a little bit interesting. Yeah. Because you get to a point and you're like, guys... We don't need a god for everything, right? <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine you've got Ares' scrawny little brother, Clipestius, god of paper clips and the ordering <laughs> yeah. of paper? It's just like coming up with gods of everything. Yeah. This right? is the god of brunch. <laughs> Zeus is just so disappointed like, in the god of brunch. <laughs> yeah. What can you do? I can bring eggs out at the right temperature. Yeah, I can make a mean mimosa. <laughs> so then you've got Pallas, which is 510 kilometers in diameter, discovered in 1807. And it's named after Pallas Athena, which is just the name of Athena, the Greek goddess of wisdom and warfare. That's good. And then you've got Hygieia at 435 kilometers in diameter, discovered in 1849 and named for Hygieia, the Greek and Roman goddess of health, cleanliness, and hygiene. Oh. Something we can think about right now. I think <laughs> yeah. about her every time I let's, wash my hands for at least 20 seconds. Let's worship that god for the next few months. By 1868, humans had discovered 100 asteroids, 1,000 by the 1920s, 10,000 by the 1990s, and a million by 2020. Shit! Right? There's, there's asteroids out there. Oh, yeah. The point is, the sky is full of giant rocks. Somewhere but the sun is a belt. Some orbit in clouds on either side of Jupiter, and some hurtle through space, colliding with anything in their path. Okay. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit about Russia. Ah. Just generally just Russia. Switching gears. Switching gears, but zeroing in. This is another one where I'm starting on the cosmic, and I'm going to zero <laughs> into a point, okay. and then I'm going to go back out to the cosmic. Oh, you know how this is. Yeah. You listen to this podcast, you know how we do things That's here. That's how we do it. <laughs> Russia's historic roots go back to the 8th century BC, uh -huh. when ancient Greek traders established trade routes to places along the edge of modern Russia, including Tana. Does that ring a bell? Probably from the Black Death. Yep. The scuffle in Tana yeah. that caused the Sicilians to flee and bring the Mongols with them That's and right. start the Black Death in 14th century <laughs> Europe. Mooning them from over that wall. <laughs> Tana was established by ancient Greeks on the edge of what is modern day Russia. And if you want to listen to the Black Plague episodes, those are 13 and 14. Despite every fiber of my being, I'm not going to dwell too much on Russian history as much as I want to. Okay. Going to yada yada some stuff. So yada yada yada, <laughs> Grand Duchy of Moscow in the 13th century, yada yada, Mongol raiders, Black Plague episodes, yada, Russian Sardom in the 17th century, yada yada yada, Russian Empire in the 18th century under Peter the Great, if I do say so myself. Eh. Yada, 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 time period we'll be talking about now. So end of Imperial Russia and beginning of the post-revolution Russian Republic. <laughs> okay, we are up to So late 19th century, early 20th century is what we're talking about. All right. In 1907, Russia was defeated in the Russo-Japanese War, which is a struggle over Manchuria and Korea. All right. Which, those kinds of wars always bum me out the most. Anyone ask what... Manchurians and Koreans felt like. <laughs> You've got like Russia and Japan fighting over these territories yeah. and people in territories are like, we've we've got plans. Uh, guys, <laughs> we kind of live here. Yeah. History. Yeah. So Japan started hostilities with a surprise attack on Port Arthur in 1904, okay. a strategy they'd lean on again 37 years later at Pearl Harbor. Uh -huh. A year and several battles later, Japan came out on top. So the Russian people weren't too happy about the loss. And they were so not too happy about the loss that in 1905, they revolted. And this is not to be confused with the Russian Revolution with a capital R of 1917. Okay. Because this time there were 100% fewer murdered monarchs and seemingly unkillable peasant mystics. <laughs> okay. And maybe we'll talk about those again. Or maybe I can recommend the Hardcore History podcast about the First World War. 
Mm. He's got a whole episode about what happens to Emperor Nicholas II and Rasputin. Oh, nice. Those are great. The revolution of 1907 made some progress. So worker strikes and military mutinies accomplished establishing a state Duma, which is like a legislative assembly, a multi-party political system. Enjoy that while it lasts. <laughs> and a Russian constitution in 1906. And I sure hope that that doesn't all get undone 10 years later and a world war later. Probably not. Regardless, this is where we drop into the timeline, specifically 1908. Okay. I'm going to zoom in a little bit more now. Okay. So generally speaking, Siberia constitutes the eastern and northern regions of Russia. Okay. And maybe somebody who knows about asteroids has figured out what we're talking about right now. I did. Did you? Yeah. When you said Russia. Oh, yeah. Russia plus asteroid? Yeah. Okay, fair yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. I also realized that because we're live, live streaming this, I can't like do my normal <laughs> nose clearing yeah. that I totally never do. <laughs> you need like a mute button that they have in radio stations, like the cough button. Yeah. <laughs> That would come or out. like that uh, chocolate chocolate rain song. I lean away from the <laughs> microphone. So I, I do can... know where to. So the Khanate of Sibir was conquered by Russian Cossacks between 1580 and 1600, subjugating the peoples and building forts right up until they reached the Pacific Ocean in 1639, which is nice of them. Yeah. The Tungusic people are an ethnic group made up of speakers of Tungusic languages. So those are languages spoken in Eastern Siberia and Manchuria. And the Tungusic people typically are found in the Tenisaysk governorate, which existed until 1925 in the region of the Podkamenaya Tunguska River, which translate to the Tunguska under the stones. Okay. River. <laughs> so most of the goings on in Russia that happened in the West. So while people were revolting in Moscow, the Tungusic peoples of Siberia were hunting, tending to their homes and maybe reading a book. Yeah, sure. Kind of helps put things into perspective, I find, because no matter where you are and how important you know your cause to be, yeah. somewhere... Probably not too far away from you are. <laughs> Someone doesn't even know that there's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Like Jared Leto in the desert meditating. <laughs> right. I heard about that. He's got some surprises yeah. to come back to. Somebody was like, dude doesn't even know that Kobe died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What the fuck? He's in for a shock. Yeah. <laughs> Sit down, Jared. We but yeah, I just, I thought that was funny. Like you, you picture, you picture Siberia in early 1900s. Part of Russia is revolting and demanding change and establishing legislative assemblies. Other part is like, I like the forest. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Yeah, that's that's where I'm probably going to go for a walk today. Yeah, 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 yeah. Life is good. So, blink and you miss it. Here's the disaster. Okay. On the morning of June 30th, 1908, uh -huh. the events, which are Russian settlers living near the Tunguska River, saw a pillar of blue hot flame tear the sky in half. Ooh. It was as bright as the noon sun. And after nearly 10 minutes of silence, there was a massive explosion that sounded like artillery that shook the countryside accompanied by a bulb-like flash. Yeah. Think like an atomic bomb. Yeah. If you go back to uh, our Chernobyl part one, episode 20, we talk about the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and what that looks like. So the resulting shockwave knocked people over and shattered windows for hundreds of kilometers. Oh, and the airwave from the blast was felt as far as Washington, D.C. Get the hell out of here. Which I looked up. It's 10,000 kilometers or 6,000 miles Whoa! away. Whoa! Uh-huh. <laughs> so kind of a big deal. That is cool. 80 million trees covering an area of over 2,000 square kilometers or 800 square miles were flattened by an explosion equivalent to 30 megatons of TNT. <laughs> Jeez. If you remember, Halifax was three kilotons. Okay. So Tunguska was a thousand times bigger. Okay. And the Halifax explosion, we did an episode with Craig from Canadian History X, whose episode came out this week. Mm -hmm. Although I guess it's not this week when this episode comes out, but... We recently did an episode with him yeah. about the Frank slide. And before that, we did an episode with him about the Halifax explosion, which was episode 16. So check that out. That's a giant man-made explosion. Which is insane. Indeed. <laughs> the other one that I have here for reference is Hiroshima, which was 16 kilotons. Okay. So Takuzuka was still 200 times bigger than the Hiroshima explosion. Jesus. And again, we talk about that at the Chernobyl episodes, episode 20 and 21. Yep. The explosion itself registered at a five on the Richter magnitude scale. Wow. And for reference, I think the last time we talked about the Richter scale was maybe the Lutuya Bay mega tsunami, which was episode five and a half. Yeah. And that was an 8.2. So not quite as big as that. But okay. still, this is an object that's registering a large... Five is not insignificant. No. I think they were saying that the news doesn't bother with anything under a four. So five would make the news. Five's considerable. Yeah. In an article published in the Quarterly Journal of the Royal Meteorological Society, people across the UK, Europe, and Asia were exposed to bright skies all around the clock for days following the explosion. <laughs> what? Constant daylight, basically. And there's reports of people being able to take photographs with the natural light at midnight. With an early 20th century camera. <laughs> 
Can you explain why? So I think the hypothesis was that crystallized debris in the atmosphere basically acted like a giant reflector okay. that would reflect the sun's rays onto Earth. And when it's supposed to be nighttime and the sun is on the other side of the Earth, yeah. it would just reflect the rays back down to Earth. So you'd never get nighttime. Weird. And that went on for months in the region. Oh my God. Yeah. On to the investigation. The Tunguska explosion was a mystery for about 20 years after it happened. Oh, wow. Which is kind of telling of the time because can you imagine something lighting up the night sky for months now and being like, ah, we'll get to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's on the docket. We'll figure it out. If you look at a map, Tunguska's pretty far from Moscow. Yeah. So Moscow's like, look, we just got a Duma. <laughs> we got things to do. We got to legislate. We just got a multi-party system that's going to be around for centuries yeah. and not overthrown in about 10 years. <laughs> we get, we got things to do. Okay. We saw some lights. Yeah, we'll get right on that. <laughs> <laughs> the other side of the coin, you've got people that are living in the area and they're like, well, that was weird. <laughs> anyway, I need to milk the ox yeah. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you milk oxes? Yeah, sure. I'm sure you do. Ox milk is a thing. Yeah. So it's partly due to the isolation of the area from the rest of Russia because everything happens to the West. So that it wasn't until 1921 that a research expedition was led to the area of the explosion by a Russian mineralogist named Leonid Kulik. Mm. He didn't quite make it to the epicenter, but he did collect eyewitness accounts. Okay. Okay, to be fair, I try to be as thorough as I can. I went to the source material of these, but they're in Russian and Google did an unintelligible job of translating them. Okay. <laughs> so this translation is brought to you by Wikipedia from a passage that I think lines up with what I was trying to read. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll trust Look, you on that. I do what I, I do what I can. Sure. Here's, here's a series of quotes from a eyewitness account. All right. At breakfast time, I was sitting by the house and I suddenly saw that directly to the north, the sky split into and fire appeared high and wide over the forest. Oh boy. The split in the sky grew larger and the entire northern side was covered with fire. When the sky opened up, hot wind raced between the houses, which left traces in the ground like pathways and it damaged some crops. So basically fire just going through the streets. Okay. Later, we saw that many windows were shattered and in the barn, a part of the iron lock had snapped. <laughs> I became so hot that I couldn't bear it as if my shirt was on fire. <laughs> then the sky shut closed and a strong thump sounded and I was thrown a few meters. <laughs> After that, such noise came as if rocks were falling or cannons were firing. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like not a great afternoon no. to be in this village. <laughs> <laughs> Following the collection of eyewitness accounts, Kulik convinced the Soviet government by the way, 1921, there was another revolution in the meantime. Okay. So now we're talking about a Soviet government, not the previous government that we were talking about. Right. If you want to hear more about the Soviets, again, I recommend the Chernobyl episodes. <laughs> they, they got things done, oh, yeah. for better or worse. Oh, yeah. He convinced the Soviet government to fund a second, more extensive expedition on the premise of salvaging meteoric iron. Okay. There's got to be money, right? Oh, there's money in them there, meteors. Exactly. At this point, Kulik strongly suspected that the cause of the explosion was a meteorite, if it wasn't clear enough from my sidebars. <laughs> We're getting that in. One year after his first expedition, Kulik went searching for the crater and that sweet, sweet cosmic iron. Mm. Unfortunately, Kulik's expeditions didn't yield as much as he hoped. So he even went as so far as to draining a bog that he suspected of being a small crater created by a fragment of the meteorite. Okay. And it just turned out just to be a bog. Just a regular bog. Found a tree in it. That's pretty much it. <sighs> Boring. It actually wasn't until the 1950s and 60s that researchers found trace deposits in the surrounding region. Uh -huh. So they found trace deposits in the form of tiny spheres of silicate and magnetite, which is like iron ore in the soil. Okay. And the chemical analysis found that these magnetite deposits contained a high ratio of nickel to iron, which is characteristic of asteroids and meteorites. Mm, now you're on the right track. So further studies found more deposits with abnormal metal ratios in the area, which further indicated extraterrestrial origin. Mm. Still, there's no crater, which is kind of weird. Very weird. The currently accepted explanation is that an asteroid exploded about 10 kilometers or six miles above the surface of the Earth. Right. This is as a result of a physical phenomenon known as ram pressure. And if Norm is still in the stream, he's going to probably <laughs> bleed out of his ears as I try to explain ram pressure <laughs> as a non-physicist. <laughs> Look, I loved physics in university, but I sucked at it, especially fluid dynamics. And this is fluid dynamics. Oh, so, dear. Basically... When a body moves through a fluid, like an asteroid through air, which is air is often treated as a fluid in, in physics, okay. ram pressure is the drag force exerted from the fluid pushing back on the object that's passing through it. Okay. And when ram pressure is generated by an asteroid traveling through the Earth's atmosphere at 11 kilometers a second, mm. or seven miles a second, it generates a massive amount of heat, which causes the asteroid to burn up. And indeed, this happens to meteoroids entering Earth's atmosphere that are basically like pebble-sized rocks. So all constantly were being hit by tiny asteroids yeah. called meteoroids. And this happens all the time. Like they hit the atmosphere, 
they encounter this ram pressure, generates a crazy amount of heat, and then they just burn up. Right. So that's what they think happened on a large scale with this Tunguska asteroid. Okay. In the 1960s, Eugene Merle Shoemaker, who was a geologist and a founder of the field of planetary science and a contributor to the lunar survey missions in the Apollo space program, which we talked about a little bit in the past and we'll come back to, uh-huh. he estimated that airburst asteroid explosions are not nearly as rare as you might think. So his research indicated that Tunguska scale events happen every 300 years or so. Okay. And in fact, in a 2002 paper, that number was refined to more like once every 1,000 years. Okay. But on average, there's one five kiloton airburst like this per year. Really? Yeah. Holy. And we'll come back to that okay. too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let's come back to that. If you need a reminder of how not rare airbursts are, think back to the 2013 viral video from a Russian highway right. of a giant fireball exploding in the sky. You remember that? I do. Like the cell phone video? Oh, yeah. So that's the Chelyabinsk meteor, which was approximately 20 meters in diameter. And the Tungusk asteroid was close to 70. Okay. Not that much bigger. Well, it's twice as, almost three times the size. I mean, size. you know, you know, it's not... Armageddon big. Said one way, it's not that much bigger. Said another way, it's like three times bigger. Uh, Okay, fine. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, that's just illustrating that that kind of thing happens pretty much annually, and it's just every now and then it happens over a populated area, like Chelyabinsk. Since the area around the Tunguska explosion was densely wooded, (laughs) (laughs) titular, it offered particularly convincing evidence of the airburst model. Trees immediately beneath the spot of the explosion were still upright, but they were stripped of leaves and branches. Okay. They were like evergreen trees. So you're basically left with a bunch of twigs sticking (laughs) up near the center. And then the further from the epicenter you went, the trees were more and more slanted away from the explosion. And that's perfectly indicative of an airburst, because this is as you would expect... And as was demonstrated in Operation Blowdown, which I'm just going <laughs> to tiny little sidebar about Operation Blowdown. <laughs> it was an experiment conducted in the Australian jungle to simulate the effects of an airier nuclear detonation on a jungle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was done in 1962 and it smacks of like peak atomic age experimentation that we talked about in the first part of the Chernobyl episode, okay, remember? nice. At the time, they were trying to dememonstrate how safe nuclear weapons were <laughs> for... Uh, Environment? They would use them for like blasting out tunnels and stuff. <laughs> And then they... <laughs> what the hell? What if we knew a jungle? <laughs> yeah. And what, what if we knew, knew the a group of wombats? Okay. <laughs> I don't, yeah, the moon. Oh, the moon. Yeah, that would be a good one. I just love the... It's it's such an Australian approach to be like, <laughs> I just toss a nuke in there, Charlie. Charlie, what, what's the worst going to happen? It's so <laughs> haphazard and eh, it's fine. I also love the idea that it, it like takes place in an era where they would rubber stamp an experiment like that. Uh-huh. Slow day at the office. They're like... <laughs> Want to nuke the jungle? (laughs) (laughs) Got to nuke something. (laughs) Approved. We got all these nukes lying around. Got to use them. Incidentally, speaking of Chelyabinsk and the atomic age, we'll be revisiting both of those at once after I get over my radiation fatigue from the four hours we spent talking about nuclear meltdowns. Yeah. But there's an interesting connection between Chelyabinsk and more nuclear problems. Oh, really? But we'll loop back around. Don't worry. Amazingly, there are no known human deaths as a result of the Tunguska explosion. What? Uh-huh. How? Look at a map and look at Siberia. Okay. Which is so remote. Nothing there. Okay, okay. You know that why it's such like a joke that like they're going to, you know, the Soviet government's going to ship you off to Siberia? Yeah. It's because there's nothing there. You're just going to like hammer rocks for years. Oh, okay. So this actually raises an interesting question that I've actually debated with some other disaster enthusiasts online. Okay. Is it a disaster if it doesn't actually affect humanity? Like, Good. if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's around to hear it, does it make a sound? Right. That kind of question. Some people were saying, if a massive volcano is a disaster, whether or not it affects a human population, right? Right. But then I was like, so does that mean that Venus is the largest source of disasters in our solar system? I wouldn't call every volcanic eruption a disaster, right? No, I Necessarily. I think it, it has to be how it relates to humanity. Yeah, that's what that, and that was my point, right? Yeah. St. Helens was a disaster yeah. because people died and it ruined a lot of civilization, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But eruptions when the earth was forming weren't necessarily a disaster. So. No. Tunguska is one of these things where it's borderline. I guess people saw it and this guy had a bad day where he had a you know, he felt hot and stuff and things got shattered. Yeah, his shirt. So I guess it's it's kind of a disaster. I would definitely call it a disaster if this hit a city. 
Sure. <laughs> I mean, it could be a disaster on an ecological level. Yeah. Or even like a like you said, it was bright all the time, so it was a disaster for yeah. trying to get a good night's sleep. Different different things to consider. Other <laughs> different than, degrees. You know, the different loss degrees. Of human life and whatnot. Where does losing sleep fall on the scale between St. <laughs> Helens and Chernobyl? Uh, hmm. It's got its own graph, I think. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I'm gonna loop back around to. Sidebar about asteroids part two. Okay. So at the forefront for me were two kind of things. The asteroid that caused the Tunguska explosion, one, didn't explode over a city. And two, didn't even hit the earth. Right. And it caused 2,000 square kilometers of destruction that would easily level any populated area that we can think of, like a city. Right. And the universe has been throwing asteroids in our direction since the very beginning. Yeah. Which kind of leads to an additional chilling thought that the asteroid that will eventually hit us yeah. is already on its way. We just don't know the size, time, or scale. Yeah, that's something to think about. A little bit of levity to throw in among the coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, it can, it can get worse. <laughs> to assuage my fears, I thought I would look into asteroid spotting and then what to do if we spot an asteroid. Okay. So in the time of Giuseppe Piazza spotting Ceres in the night sky, it was basically hand-drawn sky charts, telescopes, and predictions of where objects in the sky guy might be. Right. That's how you spotted asteroids. The first leap forward in asteroid spotting came in 1891 when Max Wolf, a German astronomer and co-inventor of the planetarium concept. Mm, planetarium. Planetarium. That's a, Did I? It's a South Park joke. Oh, planetarium. I don't, I don't watch. That's okay. South Park. <laughs> or the Simpsons. Many are shocked to learn. Oh, well. <laughs> You don't want to watch Although every time somebody references a Simpsons episode, I've always seen that episode. Yeah. But I haven't watched The Simpsons. It's one of those... It's like referencing The Godfather at this point. It's just yeah. part of our collective subconscious. Max Wolf, German astronomer and co-inventor of the planetarium concept, which was basically... I'm sure we know what it is, but it's like a theater that you can use for presentations to the public about astronomy yeah. or for training navigation by the stars, which I never knew. Oh. So if you want if you want to like train somebody how to navigate by the stars, you can use a planetarium because oh, okay. it simulates the night sky. So Max Wolf pioneered the use of long exposure photography to identify asteroids. This is actually kind of ingenious because anything that wasn't a star would appear as a streak in the image. Right. Like when you took a long exposure, oh. stars would be pretty much points because they're not really moving right. that much. But then if you had an asteroid, or any kind of night sky object, it would be a streak on the image. So they would identify those streaks and they would help to target observations to find new asteroids. So anytime you found a streak, you would look for where it ended and then try and spot the asteroid that caused that streak on the photograph. Good, good system. Yeah, well, Max, he went on to single-handedly identify almost 240 asteroids okay. using that kind of technique. We don't get greedy. <laughs> well, don't worry. There's a lot more to discover. <laughs> and also, if you think about like, he's using photography from 1891 yeah. and a telescope and he still found 240 asteroids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're looking for friggin' pebbles against the night sky uh, back when photography was stand still for an hour <laughs> while i snap your picture moving that like thing off the camera and then putting yeah. it back <laughs> if you do it too long it's overexposed yeah thing. asteroid observation was largely ignored by astronomers at first because they saw asteroids as space garbage that got in the way of observing the important stuff <laughs> right. like planets and stars Jeez. like why would we bother with the, the rocks in space What's to say? Boring. Through most of the 20th century, asteroids were spot, still spotted manually, but there was like a four-step process. So they would photograph a region of the sky, and they would take two pictures an hour apart. So you take a picture, wait an hour, take another picture of the exact same part of the sky. Uh -huh. They'd compare them side by side, and any object that's orbiting the sun would change position between those two pictures. So you'd flip back and forth between the two pictures. Uh -huh. If something changes, that's probably something orbiting the sun. Okay. They would then calculate the location of those objects relative to the known positions of stars in the photograph. Yeah. And then they would send those observations to the Minor Planet Center. And that's not a name. It's like the Minor Planet Center. For the minor... Not the minor planet center. <laughs> it's the minor planet center. For the minor planets. The ones that are no big deal. Kay. Or just aren't that big. So I got it. It's an international organization that's responsible for collecting observations of minor planets, aka asteroids, calculating their orbits, cataloging them, and publishing the findings. All right. So they look at all the submitted observations, correlate them with existing data, and if the object is indeed a new asteroid, they give it a number and catalog it. Cool. And then the naming rights for the asteroid go to the person that calculated the object's orbital path correctly the first time. Right. And they always use cool. their name. <laughs> 
Not well, always. No. <laughs> Series, Palace. Oh, yeah, right. Computer-assisted spotting has been used pretty much throughout the 21st century. That's because interest in spotting asteroids has only grown over time. Yeah. The more dread you have about what can happen, the more interest there is in spotting sure. them. <laughs> Let's learn everything about it. There, there was like a big spike in that dread in 1994 because the U.S. military declassified information from satellites that they used to detect nuclear explosions. Uh-huh. And it showed that there were hundreds of atmospheric impacts by objects of up to 10 meters across. <laughs> okay. Until 94, the military was sitting on this secret that, oh, by the way, we're getting hit by asteroids all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing to worry about, but yeah. we are. Yeah, but just unrelated, you should totally be worried. Yeah. <laughs> so what we look for most eagerly now are near-Earth asteroids, and these come in three flavors. Mm. So you've got Apollos, Amors, and Atens. So Apollos orbit the sun between Earth and Mars, and they come close to the Earth's orbit at one point, but they don't cross the Earth's orbit. Okay. But they can still be dangerous. For example, the Chelyabinsk asteroid that exploded and injured 1,500 people yeah. was an Apollo-class asteroid. Okay. If you picture the orbit of the sun... You've got the orbit, maybe we'll post a picture of this in the description and on our social medias, but you've got the orbit of the sun and then you've got the orbit of the asteroids and there's one point where it comes super close together and I guess sometimes it's close enough that it can actually get sucked into the Earth's gravitational pull and hit us. Then you've got Amors, which share an orbit with Mars and they don't really cross Earth's orbit. Uh But interestingly, the asteroid called 433 Eros is an Amor-class asteroid. So if you're interested in The Expanse, you'll probably remember the name Eros as well. Okay, for the Belters. One of the reasons I love The Expanse is that there's not a whole lot that they had to make up, except for that giant thing they had to make up. (laughs) (laughs) But everything else is true. Everything else is true. The other thing about 433 Eros is that it's the first asteroid that was landed on by a space probe. Yeah, it's cool. Thanks, Eros. Finally, you've got Atens, or as I like to call it, the shit-your-pants class of asteroids. (laughs) They actually cross Earth's orbit, and often multiple times. Okay. And uh, as of 2019, there are just under 1,500 Aten-class asteroids that have been identified. Oh, that's a lot. That is a lot. A number that would perhaps keep you up at night. Yeah. If you had said 10, I would have been like, oh, geez, 10? Really? Jeez. Yeah. No, it's, it's a kind of number where, you know, if you learn that number at, say, midnight when you're finalizing your notes, <laughs> you might not sleep that well. <laughs> So there are dozens of systems using large cameras coupled to computers that spot asteroids now. Uh, Just one of these systems, operated by the Lincoln Near-Earth Asteroid Research Project, or LINEAR, has spotted nearly 150,000 asteroids. (sighs) Like I said, there's a dozen observation projects. So from all of them, they've spotted approximately 20,000 near-Earth asteroids, Uh and almost 1,000 of those are more than one kilometer in diameter, or 0.6 miles in diameter. Okay. For reference, it's hypothesized that the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs was around 10 kilometers or six miles in diameter. Right. So depending on where they hit and how they hit, they might skip off the atmosphere, kind of like Tunguska did, or you know, explode in the air. So they might not necessarily end civilization, but they'd certainly give civilization a bad time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We'd have to uh, pivot in a big way. An asteroid colliding with Earth would cause massive devastation probably don't have to tell you, but tsunamis bigger than anything we've talked about, like in episode four about tsunamis in Japan. Yep. I think that was episode four. And then we did the Latuya Bay Tragedy Tuesday. So bigger than anything we talked about there. And one of those tsunamis actually climbed a hill. So that's that's saying something. (laughs) Firestorms much larger than the one we talked about in Hiroshima in episode 20. And an eternal winter caused by dust in the atmosphere. And we'll talk more about a year without summer in the future. Oh. So we'll see what those effects might be like. The asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs left a crater 81 kilometers in diameter near Chicxulub, Mexico. Right. And I'm going to pat myself on the back for nailing that pronunciation because if you want to hear me mispronounce a lot of Mexican words, listen to episode six (laughs) about smallpox in Mexico. (laughs) Oh, boy. Quetzalcoatl. Nailed it. Got it. Quetzalcoatl. Got it. Got it. I didn't get it at the time, but I got it now. <laughs> When it counts. So the B612 Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to planetary defense against asteroids. And they said in 2018, it's 100% certain we'll be hit, but we're not 100% sure when. <laughs> Which is... A nice thought. And also one of reading it again now, it didn't occur to me, but that's like one of the safest sentences ever spoken yeah. by anyone. Impossible to prove wrong. Right. Yeah. It's gonna happen. Just we just between between now and let's say a billion years from now. Yeah. We're gonna get hit. Could be a thousand years <laughs> from now, could be tomorrow. Yeah. 
You don't know. Either way, I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really, at the end of the day, what matters. Uh, there are also government initiatives to deal with potential asteroid impacts that date back to 1998. NASA declared a goal of spotting 90% of near-Earth asteroids, one kilometer and larger, by 2008. Yeah. And there's also private sector projects like the B612 Foundation that plan to launch a space telescope called Sentinel in 2018, but they lost funding and they're reevaluating right now. Oh. I think they're looking to launch a bunch of smaller satellites or spacecraft that'll kind of assemble images to help spot asteroids. Okay. But either way, the point is, we're looking for them. Yeah, I mean, we can't do anything about it, but we can see them. Or can we? Or can we? Good segue. Luckily, NASA has had a plan in place since 1998. Uh, It'll launch two shuttles simultaneously manned by oil drilling crews <laughs> that were put through an astronaut crash course in the matter of weeks because it's easier to train an oil rig operator to be an astronaut than it is to teach an astronaut how to operate a drill. Hey! And these crews will plant an atomic bomb deep inside the asteroid and blow it into two pieces that will safely float past Earth. You should be writing this down. That's a pretty good premise for a movie. Yeah, maybe I, maybe I should. You should. Huh. You know? That's obviously Armageddon, <laughs> one of the most ridiculous movies ever filmed. Two shuttles simultaneously. We rewatched it recently, like within the last year, I'd say, with uh, Nuclear Norm. Yeah. Even setting aside all the other absurdity in that movie, <laughs> like why would you bother training a drilling crew to be astronauts and not the other, whatever. Mm -hmm. They launched two shuttles, right? Which, okay, fine. They launched them simultaneously. <laughs> it's dangerous enough launching a single thing into space. Yeah. Why would you launch two at once? Well, two, I mean, you just, you double your chances. <laughs> <laughs> of impact with each yeah, other? exactly. <laughs> and it's not even like they're launching them at the same time, like far apart. They're like, you've got the launch pad and then like a hundred meters away is the other <laughs> launch pad. And they're just like going up. So many things could go wrong. Listen, going back to the drilling thing, I mean, I don't know if you were paying attention to the movie, but Harry, the guy, mm -hmm. Bruce Willis, I think his name's Harry, he's the he's the best. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that should answer your question of why you would train a driller to be an astronaut. He, he's the best. Do driller. you know what astronauts go through? Oh, you, I'm pretty sure. You sit in a chair and the thing goes around really fast and, you know, you're an astronaut. I think after that. Uh, I think you've got some misconceptions <laughs> about what it takes I learned to be everything an I know about that from spies like us. So, so I don't know everything it takes to be an astronaut, but I'm pretty sure it takes at least one PhD. Oh, one? <laughs> I think. Okay. <laughs> I feel like even with, it's a drill. <laughs> like, yeah. if you know how to fly a spaceship, <laughs> you know how to operate a drill. You, you can, don't even need that much training. I, I know all this science stuff, but I can't work any tools. No. Bunch of eggheads. <laughs> but they can, though. <laughs> Astronauts are the kind of people that'll, like, lecture you on quantum physics while fixing your car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> with their bare hands. You basically have to be a scientist who's also in the army. While Michael Bay doesn't know anything about asteroids, <laughs> the blowing up part is probably something he heard and latched onto for the movie. Okay. Because one of the proposals to deal with an asteroid that we've identified as coming right towards us yeah. is to nuke it. Yay! <laughs> Finally, Finally, I get to nuke something. Yeah. It's either a detonation above, at, or below the asteroid's surface, depending on the size and the composition. So, for example, if it's an asteroid that's kind of loosely held together yeah. and likely to fall apart, you would want to use a nuclear detonation above the surface because it would explode and then just push all of the fragments off course. Right. Whereas if you like exploded inside the asteroid, it would be like a shotgun blast. Yeah. And then you've got like a million <laughs> pieces instead world. of one yeah. piece. Generally, these kinds of explosions are more likely to divert an asteroid than destroy it, which is fine. Although restarting things with nukes is kind of my jam. Yeah. So I really, really just wanted to see an asteroid explode. Yeah. But Nah. Even if even if it's a big asteroid, likely what they would do is drill down just beneath the surface and detonate there, and then the explosion coming out of that hole would essentially act like a rocket that pushes it off course, and then it would help miss us. Oh, okay. All right, just do all three. Well, that would be my choice, but anyway. Triple your chances. Yeah. Another line of thinking is a collision with the asteroid with a spacecraft, or even another diverted asteroid. Okay. So in 2007, NASA called this kind of kinetic deflection, quote, the most mature approach. <laughs> I beg to differ. In my notes, I've got whatever nerds. <laughs> <laughs> the most mature approach. Come on. I think the most mature approach is blowing it up with a nuke. Yeah, exactly. What are they going to do? Like stick a wrench on the gas pedal of the shuttle and then jump out? <laughs> like that's stupid. Well, <laughs> let me tell you about what they might do. Oh, so the European Space Agency is planning two missions named Asteroid Impact and Deflection Assessment, or AIDA, in 2020. And the plan is to impact with an asteroid and change its trajectory, which is actually doable because they would hit the 
asteroid with a spacecraft that's traveling at about 10 kilometers a second, Ooh. which is right around the speed of the Tunguska asteroid. Ooh. See that? Looping around, hey. reminding everybody what we're actually talking about. <laughs> <laughs> this spacecraft would transfer its momentum to the asteroid and nudge it off course. And when you're talking about this kind of scale, you don't need to like push it out of the solar system. You just need to nudge it off course because that one little correction right. over time will compound course. and end up missing us by quite a bit. Yeah, I guess that is the mature approach. It is mature. It's just boring. Right. Yeah. More accurate would be, yeah, sure, it's it's the lame approach. Yeah. <laughs> I hope during the meeting that they announce that, yeah. whatever, there's somebody giving the speech. It's our opinion that it's the most mature approach to lame <laughs> yeah, exactly. from the back. <laughs> Who said that? Shut up, Donald. <laughs> <laughs> That would have been me in the back. Yeah. <laughs> NASA has also scheduled its double asteroid redirection test or DART for October 2022. Right, DART. And it's the same idea, which is redirecting asteroid using a kinetic impact. <laughs> Over the years, there have been several other options proposed, including attaching a rocket to the asteroid and moving it off course, <laughs> which I is like a little bit one. cartoonish. <laughs> yeah, that's the best. You can just picture Marvin the Martian doing yeah, exactly. that or something, or like no, Bugs Bunny. No, <laughs> yeah, my asteroid. <laughs> You've also got uh, uh, the option of using focused solar energy to redirect an asteroid by vaporizing its surface. No, that's stupid. But they basically focus focus the rays of the sun on the asteroid, and they would vaporize, I guess, whatever ice is on the surface, and then that vapor would help push the asteroid off course, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And then the last and my favorite of these alternative approaches lasers, hey. which is basically a space-based solar-powered satellite firing a powerful laser at an asteroid to break it up. Fuck yeah. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> lasers. Of course, as Carl Sagan pointed out, asteroid deflection could go both ways. I kind of hope that none of the global powers that are actually equipped to try deflecting asteroids would see total annihilation of humanity as a viable option. <laughs> but you can conceive of a future where a terrorist group could deflect an asteroid into Earth. <laughs> oh but I feel like we're a few hundred years. That is that. the next James Bond movie. Spacefall. Working title. <laughs> so I've got a closing thought. Okay. Before we move on to our music recommendations. Okay. On July 25th, 2019, asteroid 2019 OK came within 73,000 kilometers of Earth. And that's approximately one fifth of the distance to the moon. It was approximately 130 meters in diameter, which is twice the size of the Takuska asteroid, okay. which is a close call from a big rock. Yeah. But here's what actually kept me up at night and why I was like reading a book until 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> Astronomers noticed asteroid 2019 OK, the one that came within one fifth of the distance of the moon to us, okay. after it passed us. Oh. So all of this fancy technology and all of these ideas on how to spot an asteroid and divert it... And we missed one that was twice the size of the Tunguska oh, explosion. Okay. So we're in good hands. Well, see, you can't... Yes, for the most part. <laughs> but even one slip up on this scale could end us. Yeah. And I, I am... I'm, I'm cautious. Or like I'm, I'm making a point to say end us because as is the global theme of this podcast, it would wipe out humanity. But then Earth would be like... Finally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> First I had to deal with these asshole dinosaurs and then yeah. these monkeys running around. <sighs> Thought he had it bad with the dinosaurs. Find us some peace and quiet for another million years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was the Tunguska fireball. <clears throat> and more importantly, it was everything that I ever wanted to know about asteroids. And now you do too. There you go. <laughs> but we're afraid to ask. <laughs> you got you got ideas for music? Yeah. You had told me uh, space and you gave me I sort had. of... <laughs> loose time period so i um when i figured out what you were talking about it for a second there i was like oh i gotta change my song and i was like oh whatever i'll just go with what i originally picked so i went with um a band called mr bungle okay i think you've told me about that. um yeah i i was one of those people who was an obsessed mr bungle fan like okay i've drove to boston to see them once and like i was just like Throughout my 20s, I was a, you know, big, big fan. The song I picked is called The Benz. It's from their second album, Disco Volante, came out in 1995. Okay. It's actually a collection of little songs that sort of like this piece that, you know, it's called The Benz. It has like, you know, a, a lot of little song titles within the tune, right. but yep. um, it's sort of, it's very space themed. I think they explained it once in an interview because there aren't any, actually any lyrics, but like the, the theme is... It's ridiculous. It's like an astronaut in space who I, I, either he's trying to return to Earth or he just falls 
down to earth and he falls okay. into the swimming pool at a, at a party, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which is just sort of the theme, like just and informs the, the sort of mood of the music, but it's very kind of like this specific take on jazz. It's kind of spacey jazz, kind of exotica. Like they're sort of hearkening back to this time when, uh, this specific kind of jazz is being created to kind of test out like the capabilities of people's hi-fis and their quadraphonic sound. Right. So you just had all these like okay. weird spacey sounds happening. It was like kind of futuristic music, right. but very much kind of a 60s vibe. So um, yeah, that's the song I chose. It's very spacey and weird and, and it's a lot of fun. For me, I kind of teased this in our little uh, State of This Disaster mini episode that we released last week. Okay. So I've been listening to a lot of Death Step oh, yeah. lately, Death Step. courtesy of uh, courtesy courtesy one Nuclear Norm. The band that I've kind of been gravitating towards most lately is a band named Substep Infrabase. Cool. Which okay, sure. Yeah. I, don't, I don't judge a book by its <laughs> name. I'm intrigued. Uh, so it's kind of they're kind of like a Death Step synthetic metal group. Okay. They're from London, UK. The album I've been listening to mostly is. Brutbiental Narcogorium from 2012. Okay. And the song I picked is called Sarcotech. And the reason I picked it, it's like the intro track. It doesn't actually get into the death steppy part, like or like the dubstep sounding part. Yeah, yeah. It's more like an intro track, but it's kind of dark, echoey, and empty. And I listened to it, and it made me think of the, the asteroid hurtling through the cold darkness of space uh-huh. on its way to hit us. The one that's out there now that's going to hit right. us. It's out there. It's out there. And when I think about it, this is the perfect soundtrack in my mind for thinking about <laughs> that devastation coming our way. <laughs> Good. Also, like I was saying in the in that update, I was talking about my love of dubstep and how it kind of got saturated for me. Yeah. This has kind of reinvigorated my like for the you know wobbly baseline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. And uh, if if you want more of a banger, there's another song on the album called Brut Bientum. Mm which is friggin' sweet. It's, it's, that's much more representative of what Death Step is about, and it's pretty pretty awesome. Yeah. So that's that's that. Nice. So thanks, everyone, for joining us in the live stream and listening at home. If you want to help us out, as I always say, the best thing you can do is tell a friend to listen in the short or long time that we have left before the next major asteroid impact. <laughs> <laughs> you might have minutes. You might have thousands of years. Either way, you should fill all of that time by telling people to listen to this podcast. That's right. That's right. Spend the next 1,000 years telling people to listen to this podcast. <laughs> Keep it going. The next best thing you can do, if you aren't already, please consider subscribing and leaving a review. Reviews are super helpful as well, wherever you listen. I think Apple Podcasts is still probably the best place, but honestly, anywhere. Just let, let people know that you you dig it. That's right. You know? If you want to follow us on social medias, at This Disaster Pod, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, we got a website, www.thisdisasterpod.com. We got Lee sniffing his microphone, full nose. We got a patreon.com slash thisdisasterpod where you can get perks like access to this live stream recording session. And I think if, if people enjoyed this, then we can consider doing this more often. Yeah. We might as well do this every time. Right. Why not? Kidding. This time you're seeing us in the in, in our own home. You've got I've got my bust of Zeus up there. Consider becoming a patron. That's super helpful. Like I said, we've got a goal there too that if we meet, we'll be producing some more awesome content that we've got in mind. We're just dying to get that done. So uh, help us out with that. Lee, you got anything to add? Um, no, not this week. Just thanks for listening and and have a great uh, time self-isolating and, you know. Thanks for tuning in and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Oh, wait. Oh, no. no, no, no. Next time. Oh. So this time we talked about explosions in the sky. Oh. And next time we'll be talking about ancient explosions from beneath. (laughs) So tune in for that and join us for our Tragedy Tuesday next week and our next major disaster. Bye. Bye. Bye.